Hello, my name is Geraldine Goescolar. I am Adjunct Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore. My topic for today is the international law relating to space resources, space assets, and knowledge management in outer space. In 2016, the global space economy totaled 329 billion US dollars, of which some 76% was made up by the commercial space economy. This represented a 4 billion growth in value year on year on present space-based assets. Now, this figure does not account for the value of knowledge and intellectual property derived from space-based ventures and assets. Moreover, in the near future, there are expectations of revenue deriving from resources harvested from outer space. And that is just a return on investment in space in economic terms. It is difficult to put a number on other political, scientific, strategic, policy, and cultural returns. The fact is that space activities cost a lot, generate a lot, and will continue to contribute a lot to the global economy. Today, I will discuss three specific aspects of law relating to the use of outer space. First, I will consider the law relating to the utilization of space resources, with specific focus on the harvest and exploitation of extraterrestrial mineral resources, also known as space mining. Secondly, I will review aspects of international law related to the financing of space assets and ventures, and in particular, the Convention on International Interest in Mobile Equipment and its protocol relating to space assets. Lastly, I will discuss aspects of international law related to knowledge management in outer space, including technology transfer and intellectual property rights. Let's turn first to the utilization of space resources. The depletion of Earth's non-renewable natural resources is a matter of great concern. Material research and construction are working towards a solution to this problem. However, a potential alternative solution is to utilize resources from outer space, for example, through the mining of the Moon or of near-Earth objects such as asteroids and comets. Presently, some 13,500 near-Earth objects are being tracked, approximately 850 of which are larger than one kilometer across. Half of these near-Earth objects are carbonaceous, and the other half comprise mostly rocky, metallic, or silicate-based asteroids. From a resource-based perspective, the rocky, metallic, and silicate-based asteroids are of great interest, since they may present the most readily available source of iron alloys, as well as other platinum group metals such as platinum, palladium, and iridium. Other elements of industrial and manufacturing interest that may potentially be mined from these asteroids include phosphorus, antimony, zinc, tin, lead, silver, gold, and copper. On the other hand, carbonaceous asteroids may harbor frozen water, which can be processed into liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen in order to manufacture spacecraft propellant. Remote sensing of the lunar crust has also yielded information that there is a significant amount of metal on our moon that could potentially be retrieved and refined for use. This includes titanium, iron, and aluminium. Moreover, rare and trace Earth elements such as thorium and uranium may be present in significant quantities on the moon. These elements are highly valuable commodities and essential in the production of food products, renewable energy products, medical devices, and catalytic converters. Soil on the lunar surface also harbors regolith crystals with large amounts of the isotope helium-3, a potential substitute to fossil fuels. 
further, the moon may also contain large reserves of water, which would be of particular interest in space exploration. Since launching payloads from the surface of the Earth is hugely expensive, finding water on the moon will allow further space exploration and perhaps the operation of a lunar base without having to launch water from Earth. Aside from sustaining life, water can also be processed into propellant for spacecraft. Various states have launched reconnaissance space missions in order to assess extraterrestrial resource exploitation, including China, Japan, India, and the United States. A number of private companies have also declared their intention to pursue privately funded extraterrestrial mining projects. These companies include planetary resources and deep space industries. Planetary resources intend to send mining missions to near-Earth objects in order to mine their mineral resources. Deep space industries intend to examine, sample, and harvest asteroids and to process harvested resources in high-Earth orbit. From a legal perspective, the status of the resources harvested by extraterrestrial mining is controversial. The 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, or the Outer Space Treaty, provides in Article 2 that outer space is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. This makes clear that the traditional means of acquiring sovereign and property rights do not apply to outer space or to any of the celestial bodies. This reinforced the provision in Article 1 of the same treaty, which protects the freedom of exploration and use of outer space. These two articles give outer space the status of res communis omnium, a global commons to which all states have access, but which cannot be appropriated by any one state. The controversy in relation to the exploitation of extraterrestrial resources is tied to this prohibition on the national appropriation of outer space and the celestial bodies. Some commentators have argued that the prohibition in Article 2 refers to national appropriation, that is, what Article 2 prohibits is the appropriation by states, as opposed to appropriation by private individuals. This cannot be the case. The object and purpose of the Outer Space Treaty was to prohibit any claim to sovereignty or ownership over outer space and the celestial bodies, thereby keeping outer space free to all as the common heritage of mankind. There is no reason to interpret Article 2 as prohibiting states, but not private individuals, from appropriating outer space and the celestial bodies. Moreover, Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that states bear international responsibility for national activities in outer space, including the activities of non-governmental entities, and are to authorize and continuously supervise such activities. When read in conjunction, Articles 2 and 6 prohibit the appropriation of outer space and the celestial bodies by both states and private entities for three reasons. First, a state cannot authorize a private entity's appropriation of outer space and any celestial body when it itself cannot do so. Secondly, ownership of a private property exists by legal designation of the sovereign with jurisdiction to do so. Without any sovereignty in outer space, private property ownership cannot exist. Thirdly, the prohibition on any claim of sovereignty in outer space and on celestial bodies in Article 2 means that national domestic legislation cannot apply. Were a state to recognize claims by its nationals over extraterrestrial property, this would constitute an appropriation by other means.
which is a breach of Article 2. One must, therefore, look further than the Outer Space Treaty in order to determine the legal status of extraterrestrial resources. On this point, the 1979 Agreement Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies, or the Moon Agreement, is particularly relevant. It is noteworthy that, of the five space treaties concluded under the auspices of the United Nations, the Moon Agreement has by far the lowest numbers of ratification and signature. However, as Lex Specialis, in relation to activities on the Moon and other celestial bodies, it is of particular significance, since it establishes rules that govern the exploration, use and exploitation of natural resources on those bodies. For present purposes, the most relevant provision in the Moon Agreement is Article 11. Article 11, paragraph 1, reiterates that the Moon and its natural resources are the common heritage of mankind. Article 11, paragraph 2 of the Moon Agreement then reaffirms the principle of non-appropriation in relation to the Moon and other celestial bodies that found expression in Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty. Article 11, paragraph 3, clarifies that neither the surface and subsurface of the Moon, nor the natural resources in place, shall become the property of any state, international intergovernmental organization, or non-governmental organization, national organization, or non-governmental entity, or any natural persons. Moreover, the placement of personnel, equipment, and facilities on or below the surface does not create any right of ownership over the surface and subsurface of the Moon. The Common Heritage of Mankind concept was also used in the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS, which declared under Article 136 that the deep seabed was the common heritage of mankind. An organizational structure in the form of the International Seabed Authority was established in order to protect the resources of the deep seabed from being exclusively exploited by more advanced states and their private entities. Notably, the Moon Agreement does not provide for such a protective organizational structure. Indeed, Article 11, Paragraph 5 calls for the establishment of an international regime for the exploitation of the natural resources of the Moon and celestial bodies only when such exploitation is about to become feasible. Article 11, Paragraph 7 goes on to provide for the main features of this regime, including the fact that extraterrestrial natural resources should be rationally managed and that the benefits derived therefrom should be equitably, though not equally, shared among states. The formulation of equitable sharing is an acknowledgement of vast investment necessary to exploit these resources, while aiming to take into account the interests and needs of developing states not in a position to do so themselves. As a result of the low rate of signatures and ratifications of the Moon Agreement, some commentators have argued that it should be entirely disregarded or, at least, that the lack of support for its provisions shows that custom to the contrary is crystallizing. Another point of view argues that the non-appropriation principle applies only to outer space and the celestial bodies, but not to resources that have been extracted therefrom. Advocates of this position draw an analogy from the rules relating to the freedom of the high seas, noting that there exists the right to remove and use natural resources thereof, for example, in fishing. State practice in the form of legislation promulgated by the United States also takes this position, granting ownership over resources extracted from extraterrestrial bodies. 
Now, opponents to this perspective point out that the high seas and outer space have different legal statuses, and that the legal status of outer space as a global commons is more similar to that of Antarctica. It should, however, be noted that the ratification process of the Wellington Convention on the Regulation of Mineral Resources in, in Antarctica collapsed, with the withdrawal of support from key states such as Australia and France. There is no general agreement today as to the legal rules governing the removal and utilization of extraterrestrial resources for commercial purposes or financial gain, whether by states or by private entities. Until recently, there has been no urgency to establish an international regime for the exploitation of the natural resources of the moon and celestial bodies, given that the technology and economic power to harvest and exploit extraterrestrial resources had not been developed. However, with states and private entities now in possession of both technology and financial capital to do so, it will become increasingly urgent to have this regime. I turn now to the second part of today's lecture, which focuses on certain aspects of international law relevant to the financing of space assets and ventures. If there is one thing certain about the exploration and use of outer space right now, is that it doesn't come cheap. Even with many technologies and components now being available off the shelf, the fact is that the construction of a satellite can run into millions of dollars. Another large expense in relation to space-based assets is the cost of launch. Until recently, depending on the size and weight of the payload, the market price of a single launch ranged between $100 million and a quarter of a billion dollars. With disruptive technology and business plans, newer entrants to the launch industry, such as SpaceX, have dramatically reduced the cost of launch. However, even with the use of reusable launch vehicles and novel engineering and design choices, a single launch would still set the launching entity back at least 55 million US dollars. By this count, the price tag of a single space asset, even before operational and maintenance costs, runs into hundreds of millions of dollars. Due to the capital-intensive nature of the space sector, therefore, financing often plays a crucial role in the success, or otherwise, of a venture. More often than not, such financing takes the shape of secured debt and lease transactions. Recognizing the importance of harmonizing the law governing such transactions, the Convention on International Interests in Mobile Equipment, concluded in Cape Town, South Africa in 2001 under the auspices of UNIDOIS, aims to establish an international legal framework regulating asset-backed financing. The Convention, commonly referred to as the Cape Town Convention, includes the Space Assets Protocol, which was concluded on the 9th of March 2012. As of the date of this lecture, the protocol is not yet in force, meaning that the Cape Town Convention does not yet apply to space assets. The objective of the Cape Town Convention and the Space Assets Protocol is to establish a transparent method by which to ensure a creditor's priority over competing claimants and the enforceability of remedies specific to space assets. The idea is that, in the event of a default, a financial institution will be more easily able to gain recourse to the debtor's space asset. The security provided to financial institutions in this arrangement allows companies in the space sector with limited assets to more easily seek asset-based financing. The Space Assets Protocol facilitates the application of the Cape Town Convention to space assets by specifically addressing issues related to the licensing requirements, such as the use of orbital slots and radio frequencies. 
Article 1, Paragraph 2 of the Space Assets Protocol defines certain criteria for an object to be considered a space asset. The first is that the object must be man-made. Significantly, this means that minerals harvested from a celestial body, such as the moon or an asteroid, do not qualify as space assets. Secondly, the object must be uniquely identifiable, a factor that is essential to its registration and, therefore, to the identity of the entity that has jurisdiction and control over it in accordance with Article 8 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, as elaborated by the 1975 Registration Convention. Thirdly, the object must either be in space or designated to be launched into space, meaning that the Convention and the Protocol apply not only to objects already in space, but also to those that have still to be launched. Fourth, the asset must be a spacecraft, a payload, or a component of a spacecraft or payload. Lastly, the asset must be separately capable of registration. If these five criteria are met, then an international interest can attach to the space asset in question, and the Convention and Protocol will apply to it and all parts or equipment attached to it, as well as to all data, manuals, and records relating to it. Now, what is the international interest that attaches to the space asset? Article 2, Paragraph 2 of the Cape Town Convention provides that this refers to a synthesis of three types of interests. A security interest, the interest held by a conditional seller under a title reservation agreement, and the interest of a lessor. According to Article 7 of the Cape Town Convention, an international interest will be created where, first, there is an agreement in writing, secondly, the debtor has the power to dispose of the asset, and thirdly, the asset in question can be properly identified. Security interests require an additional factor that the security agreement enables the secured obligations to be determined without the need to state a sum or maximum sum secured. Remedies provided for under the Cape Town Convention prioritize efficient recourse, generally by allowing the creditor recourse to the asset without a court order. Pursuance of a remedy under the Cape Town Convention requires compliance only with a few technical requirements, so long as the remedies are carried out in a commercially reasonable manner. It also provides for a raft of various remedies for different transactional situations, including interim relief, the sale or lease of a collateral, and the transfer of title. Additionally, the Space Assets Protocol provides for special remedies in the case of the insolvency of the debtor. Moreover, Article 26 of the Space Assets Protocol expressly preserves a state's right to regulate the launch or operation of space assets, the provision of services that rely on the use of space assets, the use of orbital positions and frequencies, and the placement of command codes. The protocol also limits the enforcement of remedies that may have a negative effect on public services rendered by the space assets in question. Most significantly for our purposes, Article 35 of the Space Assets Protocol expressly provides for the primacy of the existing treaties relating to outer space and space activities within the United Nations framework. It is too early to know if the Cape Town Convention and the Space Assets Protocol will have a significant impact on the space sector. Only four states, Burkina Faso, Germany, Saudi Arabia and Zimbabwe, have signed a protocol, with no state having yet ratified it. Opposition to the protocol from industry stakeholders has already emerged, despite the fact that they were involved in the drafting of the instrument. 
Criticism of the protocol includes the ambiguity of the definition of space assets, the public service exemption from remedies, and the fact that the protocol adds a supervening layer of law to the space industry. It remains to be seen whether the promise of a harmonized legal framework for the international financing of space assets and the protection that that framework can provide will be sufficient motivating factors to tempt more states into signature and ratification. The last topic I will touch upon today relates to technology transfer, intellectual property rights, and knowledge management in the context of space activities. Many space activities either allow for the development of intellectual property through technological and scientific research, or involve services that are based on, or profit off of, intellectual property. Moreover, many space activities involve international cooperation, whether in the framework of public international cooperation between agencies, or in the context of international commercial contracts. It is noteworthy that, after many years of development, a complete set of rules has already been established for the international regulation of intellectual property protection. However, intellectual property laws and regulations are essentially territorial in nature. Intellectual property rights are protected and enforced by the relevant state upon registration in a specific geographic area and for a specific period of time. This territorial regime is diametrically different from the non-territorial nature of space law. Article 2 of the 1967 Treaty Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, or the Outer Space Treaty, provides that outer space is free from national appropriation, and that no state can claim national sovereignty over outer space or any part thereof by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. The exercise of a state's territorial jurisdiction is, therefore, prohibited in outer space. However, Articles 6 and 8 of the Outer Space Treaty, which respectively provide for the international responsibility of states over national activities in outer space, and for the jurisdiction and control over space objects by the state of registry, enable the protection of intellectual property rights through the mechanisms of authorization, continuous supervision, and licensing by the relevant state. Moreover, Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that states' parties to the treaty shall carry on activities in the exploration and use of outer space in accordance with international law. There is, therefore, no reason why the international legal regime in place for the protection of intellectual property rights cannot apply to rights derived from or related to space activities. This means that intellectual property rights derived from or related to space activities may be protected by, among others, the regimes established under the Berne Convention for the Protection of Literary and Artistic Works, as revised in 1971, the Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property and its Final Protocol, the World Intellectual Property Organization, including the 1997 Copyright Treaty, and the World Trade Organization, including the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. There have also been sui generis bilateral and multilateral legal regimes in space law that protect intellectual property rights. One such agreement is the 1998 Intergovernmental Agreement for the International Space Station. The agreement expressly provides for a quasi-territorial approach establishing that an activity occurring in or on a flight element of the space station should be deemed to have occurred only on the territory of the state of registry of that flight element. Therefore, the relevant domestic laws relating to intellectual property rights apply, and those laws govern the creation, use, protection and transfer of intellectual property. 
intellectual property occurring in the European module is deemed as having occurred in any of the European partner states' territories. However, for the purposes of enforcement, claims can only be brought in one European state, even if the intellectual property is protected in more than one state. A point of note in the regime governing the International Space Station is that Article 21, Paragraph 3 of the Intergovernmental Agreement prohibits a partner state from applying its own laws on the secrecy of inventions in order to prevent a person who is not as national or resident from filing a patent application in any other partner state that protects the secrecy of patent applications containing information that is classified or protected for national security purposes. On the topic of national security, advanced space technologies are also usually considered to be highly sensitive and are normally protected in the interest of national security. There is consensus within the international community on the necessity of export controls over certain space technologies and products. These controls are enforced usually through various measures adopted by states, including licensing requirements and the imposition of quotas. International cooperative agreements have also included considerations on the transfer of sensitive technology. An example can be found in Article 19 of the Intergovernmental Agreement on the International Space Station, which limits the transfer of technical data and goods to those considered to be necessary to fulfill the responsibilities of that partner's cooperating agency under the relevant MOUs and implementing arrangements. Article 19 goes on to provide that partner states are to take appropriate measures to prevent unauthorized use, disclosure or retransfer or unauthorized access to certain technical data and goods. The same arrangement can be found in Article 23 of the 2005 Convention on the Asia-Pacific Space Cooperation Organization, which provides that member states shall reach agreements on technology safeguarding measures prevent any unauthorized access to protected information, items and related technologies, and that member states shall respect national export control laws. Export control regimes related to conventional weapons and sensitive dual-use goods and services may also apply to space technologies. Examples include the 1996 Rasenar arrangement, which serves to coordinate national regulations on export controls as well as the Missile Technology Control Regime that was originally established by the G7 countries in April of 1987. State practice relating to export control has also been consistent with various states establishing rules for export control measures that they consider are necessary for the protection of their respective national security, foreign policy and short supply interests. Examples include Canada's 1985 Export and Import Permits Act and its associate regulations, China's foreign trade law and its 2002 regulations on control of military products export and regulations on export control of missile and missile-related items and technologies, as well as the various legislation promulgated by the United States, including its 1949 Export Control Act, 1976 Arms Export Control Act, and its 2004 International Traffic in Arms Regulations. Knowledge management in relation to space activities, whether for the protection of intellectual property rights or in the interest of national security, is an important part of the legal framework governing the use of outer space. The commercialization of space activities brings certain urgency to the discussion, as ever highly evolved technologies are being developed by private entities for profit. International law already has a mature legal system for the international protection of intellectual property rights, and state practice has shown a long-established legacy of limiting technology transfer for reasons of national interest.
This is the framework in which knowledge management in relation to space activities is being undertaken. In this lecture, I have discussed three areas of law relating to the use of outer space that are of contemporary interest, the utilization of space resources, the financing of space assets and ventures, and intellectual property protection, technology transfer, and knowledge management. Events in these three fields have surpassed the development of the law. As greater numbers of private entities are involved in space activities, there has been a pushback against greater regulation on the basis that such regulation is said to stifle innovation and industry. There is some truth to that argument. However, it is also important not to lose sight of the idealism with which this field of international law was conceived. If outer space is to be the common heritage of mankind, and the exploration and use of outer space is to be for the benefit and in the interest of humanity, it is inevitable, indeed essential, that an international legal framework is put in place in order to protect those lofty goals. Thank you.